Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. We've got a few different topics for you today. We're going to kick off as usual with a news roundup where we're going to cover uh, 5G, new wireless network technology that's being talked about more and more by the US wireless carriers, including AT&T, who made an announcement today. Uh, We'll talk briefly about what looks to be shaping up as Apple's March event and some of what we're seeing and not seeing in the reporting there. And then um, ASICS, the Japanese running shoe manufacturer, is buying RunKeeper, one of the last big uh, independent fitness apps for iOS and, and what that means. So that's our news roundup. We'll then have our question of the week, and it's a feature we haven't had for the last couple of weeks as we've been very earnings heavy, Uh, but we're we're going back to that feature now with question of the week. Um, And the question this week, uh, which I'll be handling, is uh, should Apple make iMessage a platform uh, like some of the, for example, the Asian messaging apps and and Facebook's kind of heading this direction too? Uh, And if it did, what would that mean? So that'll be our question of the week. That'll be our kind of central topic today. And then our final topic will be Twitter's earnings this week and what we make of those. So that's our uh, agenda for today's uh, episode. We'll we'll kick off then with the news roundup and and this 5G news. And so we're hopefully obviously all familiar with 4G as a wireless network technology in the cellular world. And it's come to mean LTE, essentially, although there was some debate early on about exactly what 4G would be. Uh, well, just when LTE is becoming basically universally available within the US and, and to some extent in other countries, we're now talking about the next uh, phase in, in cellular technology with 5G. And uh, Verizon made some announcements earlier this year. As I said, AT&T's just put out a press release talking about some of their roadmap and strategy for 5G today. Um, what's interesting is there is no standard for 5G yet. So there's a standards organization called 3GPP that kind of owns the uh, major cellular network standards um, that most of the world is now uh, coalescing around and, and they haven't standardized 5G yet. So all of this activity that's going to be happening is is outside of um, you know the standardization process. Uh, one of the things I found interesting about AT&T's announcement this morning is they're saying they're going to be doing this in such a way that when 3GPP does finally standardize 5G, that it'll be able to work within that and and this won't be some separate branch that's happening outside of all of that process. So that's heartening to me because some of what Verizon's been talking about, it, I worried that they were trying to kind of drive a de facto standard by doing too much work ahead of time. And so uh, we'll see how this affects things. But Aaron, any thoughts from you about all this? Well, I think the most interesting impact in in day-to-day use for people will be whether or not they need to keep a home internet connection. You know, I think Comcast and um, Time Warner need to be a little bit worried about how useful 5G turns out to be, um, especially because the mobile, you know, uh, network, like the, the mobile companies have really clearly made a permanent shift to data being the 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 sort of measuring stick that, you know, um, that, that people pay for rather than minutes or texts or any of that kind of stuff, which means that they clearly have their sights set on data, which is essentially what Comcast and Time Warner home internet connections are all about. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, and the main sort of selling point with 5g would be, you know, higher throughput, um, you know, sort of better performance. Ultimately, you'll be able to get faster connections and, and get more content through those and so on. So that will be the headline here. And, and the question is just, you know, how good will it be? 
how widespread will it be and when? You know, these things tend to have, you know, at least a five-year deployment cycle from, from the kind of activity that's happening this year to when it starts to be deployed in significant numbers. It, it's looking like 5G may move a little more quickly than 4G did in that respect, and, and certainly than 3G did quite a few years ago. So it'll be very interesting to watch how quickly this actually starts to be deployed. You know, another thing AT&T's been talking about is they've been moving to more software-defined networking in their networks. So in other words, you don't have to swap out all the hardware to do network upgrades anymore. And so they're saying that should enable them to roll out some of this network technology more quickly. So it'll be very interesting to watch this. Um, there's a huge wireless industry confab going on in Barcelona over the next sort of week to 10 days. Uh, I think it starts about a week from now. Um, and 5G will be discussed a lot there, so it's worth... Uh, watching news out of uh, Mobile World Congress as well for, for more of this. Let's move on then to the Apple event. And, um, you know, it's not announced yet, but it's, it's reported that it will be in mid-March. I think March 15th is the date that a couple of people are pointing to. Um, you know, a few things lining up here. It looks like we won't get new Apple Watches, um, at least not brand new uh, watch hardware, there may be some new bands and, and other things announced around the watch. But uh, interesting, though, that I, I've noted over the last couple of weeks that uh, Target and Best Buy are both discounting Apple Watches by about $100 at this point for pretty much all the models. Um, that's interesting if there aren't new watches coming in March. So um, I'm, I'm curious to see. I, I don't think this will have been missed by the usual people that report on this stuff, but interesting to see what happens there. Um, but a few other things, but, but Aaron, you noticed something that was kind of missing from the reporting here. Yeah, there are no rumors, no reliable rumors anyway about updates to the Mac line. Um, you know, I think the stuff that's sort of ripe for pretty substantial updates right now obviously includes any of the laptops. I, the, the MacBook, I think, sort of showed the way that Apple's going to be heading with, with all their portable lines, and I don't you know, I, I'm surprised we haven't seen rumors about what a new MacBook Pro is going to look like, you know, and we've talked about this idea on the show before, but what's interesting is that a lot of the details of the March event have shaped up with a pretty fair amount of certainty, right? Um, I, iPad Air 3, iPhone 5SE, um, you know, updates to watch bands and materials and colors, but there hasn't really been any strong whispering about the Mac line, which surprises me. I think the iMac line also is probably up for a big update. I mean, it really is driven by two things. One, the USB-C connection update, because Apple has a history of moving to these technologies really fast throughout their lines. But then the other is the Skylake processors at Intel seems to have filled in all the gaps um, for the majority of Apple's computer lines. And they're and now they've you know they've got they've got all the processors in their price list now, which means that they're selling these things. And I'm, I'm surprised right. we haven't seen any firm rumors yet on that. That said, you know the supply chain on the Mac is obviously much much smaller than on the iPhone or the iPad, and because that's the case, it's probably easier for Apple to keep secrets. So maybe that's what's going mm -hmm. on, or maybe there's really not going to be anything on the Mac line until you know early summer. Yeah, it's interesting because Apple's kind of settling into this kind of quarterly release schedule, at least, you know, as far as events go. So you've got March, you know, 
this time around you've got June-ish for WWDC and then you've got September for new iPhones and usually iPads and things like that. So, um, you know, if you were to pick one of those three, you'd think this March event would be a great occasion to debut lots of new Macs because it'd be less crowded with other announcements. It won't, you know, it's not a developer focused thing. So it doesn't seem like a great fit for WWDC, which has become so, you know, over scheduled anyway recently. And then September is always packed with new iPhones and iPads and other things anyway, and it's likely to be when new watches debut this time around. So this feels like this is the obvious time to announce it. So unless it doesn't get an event and just gets press released, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that we haven't seen anything around new Macs, which would seem, you know, almost a certainty to be announced at some point this year. So it'll be interesting to watch how that pans out and if we start getting details about Macs over the next few weeks before the event actually happens. Right. Um, the last of our three news roundup items was um, the news that ASICS, a Japanese sportswear manufacturer, mostly makes shoes, um, is buying Runkeeper, one of the last indie uh, fitness apps um, out there and you know, this is part of a long trend now you know Nike's obviously invested quite a bit in this area um, we've had Adidas has made an acquisition in this area Under Armour has rolled up quite a few of the smaller apps uh, including the Map My Fitness apps um, and so it really feels like you know both it's getting harder and harder for these companies the, the the fitness app companies to remain independent and to make a go of that successfully but also that these uh, sportswear companies seem to feel the need to expand their brands and their operations to include this kind of stuff and presumably to increasingly bake it into uh, their clothing and especially things like shoes yeah it you know I, uh, when, when all of these indie running apps started taking off, I remembered wondering how they're going to make money, especially because they all started off with just the pay for app model. You know, you'd spend $5 on the running app and that was how they made their money. And then a whole bunch of them started offering free apps going after the freemium approach instead. And so they would, you know, offer their app. They essentially all started offering their running apps for free. And then you could you could pay for this premium service, which would enable all these new features. So with RunKeeper, for example, the RunKeeper Pro or RunKeeper Go feature or plan came with coaching plans that would give you running workout schedules. Um, it would sort of do a deeper dive on your running data to give you insights on your progress, like and also allow you to compare workouts. And then I think one of the more interesting features was. The, uh, uh, the ability for live tracking so that somebody could, through a web browser, watch your run. And so if you're in a race that day, they could watch your progress in the race. The, the problem is, is none of these are super compelling features compared to the cost. And so RunKeeper Go, the, the premium service you pay for with RunKeeper, is 10 bucks a month or 40 bucks a year, which is... I mean, you have to really love these added services to pay that much extra a month. And this is kind of how it is for all the different running apps. And so when you're stuck in a freemium model where the features you're adding are not worth the money you're charging um, because the the free end is so feature rich, I just, I've been wondering for years how these companies do financially. And uh, I think the, the flurry of acquisitions over the last couple of years you've seen reflects that uh, they, uh, the, their revenue models aren't all the way there and running this, I think this is why, you know, athletic equipment companies have started grabbing them because they're much more compelling if they're sort of baked into, you know, selling shoes. 
Right, and it, yeah, it's part of a, an overall fitness brand that you kind of engage with where you buy their clothing and then you use their apps and it somehow all works together. And we haven't seen a lot of examples beyond kind of the Nike Plus stuff of tracking being built into clothing or shoes themselves. But I'm sure there's more of that coming as well. You know, Under Armour and HTC uh, partnered around a CES to announce this kind of box of devices and, and wearables and so on that would track fitness. And so you know, there's going to be more and more of this kind of integration between these things as well. But it's also just a branding exercise. You know, you want to be the brand that people associate with whatever activity they engage in around fitness, whether it's running or biking or whatever it might be, basketball or, you know, um, whatever form of fitness you do. Um, you know, it feels like these companies are trying to own the, the whole of that, essentially. And, and uh, you know, this is just going to keep going in this way. I think what makes it weird as a branding exercise is that all these apps already have their own distinct brands. I, mm -hmm. You know, in my experience, people are pretty loyal to their running apps. They don't like switching. I just barely right. switch. Like, I, I run, um, I, I, I just barely switch from RunKeeper. Um, and I forgot the name of the app I switched to. That's kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> um, to run Tastic Pro, and it's because they had a day where Run Tastic Pro was free, and I thought I'd try it out. And I switched because I like the intervals, the way mm -hmm. intervals work better on the app. But I mean, really, these are all functionally the same, and so switching comes with the high cost of ditching all your data from your previous right. running app, right? Which yeah. was the thing I was on the fence about. I decided to make the switch, but I was with Runkeeper from the very, very beginning of the app. In mm -hmm. fact, I was one of the people who actually paid for it when it was originally a paid download, right? And uh, you know, but this this is all you know. The, the branding that these acquiring companies have been able to shoehorn in seems at best incidental. I think that's true. For example, with MyFitnessPal, which is a great mm -hmm. app and it has the Under Armour logo, you know, hanging around in various places. But but all these apps have their own distinct brands, and I you know I haven't really seen anybody successfully take one of these apps and rebrand it in a way that's meaningful enough to attach me to the acquiring company. Right, yeah, it's been pretty subtle so far. And Under Armour has this record app or record app. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce it, but um, that they announced at CES as well, which is kind of the Under Armour version that presumably draws on a lot of the expertise they acquired with the other apps that they bought. Um, and so I would guess over time, you know, that the Under Armour logo is kind of the beginning of an effort to try to perhaps move people towards that or to integrate these other apps with that more closely. And so it'd be interesting to watch how that happens. Um, Lauren Good had an article on The Verge that you pointed me to um, that talked about kind of the death of the indie fitness app. And the one exception that she mentioned is Strava, which um, you know, is very popular, especially among uh, aficionados of certain sports and, and biking among them. Um, but that's kind of expanded in the opposite direction is it sort of expanded to have a store that sells fitness gear and that kind of thing from third parties. And so it'll be interesting to watch if they can stay independent or if they end up getting swallowed up by somebody else. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on then from our news roundup to our um, main um, sort of topic for the day and our question of the week. And um, again, I've done the kind of research here to, to be able to talk about this one today. But the, the question is, um, should Apple turn iMessage into a platform? And if it did, what would that mean? Well, and so th this all comes from, Deanne, and we were talking about this before we started recording, this comes from the fact that messaging apps in Asia are really becoming platforms. I mean, they're, they're about much more than just messaging. And so why don't we start there? And can you talk us through what these messaging apps are like in Asia and why they are more platforms than just messaging um, applications. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is absolutely the model that, that Apple would be to some extent following, and we need to talk about how it would be different in a minute. But uh, we've got WeChat in China, you've got Line in Japan and some other markets, you've got Kakao Talk in Korea and others. And what these apps have in common is that they've sort of slowly expanded to become almost quasi operating systems. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in the context of Facebook on previous episodes, but essentially where many of the devices are Android, it's possible for other apps to sort of subsume a lot of the functionality of the operating system and become kind of the core part of the experience on the mobile device. And so, you know, beyond just being a messaging app, which is what iMessage is today, is, you know, a way to exchange messages, um, these have expanded to become kind of social platforms. They've expanded to become uh, app stores. They've expanded to become payment platforms. Um, you can order cabs through them. In some cases, you can um, consume music through them. You uh, have stickers and other richer forms of content that go beyond just kind of text and photos. Um, there's a whole range of other stuff that's been built around them. And this has essentially become the business model for a lot of these uh, companies is all the virtual goods that you can buy, all the additional services that are made available through these messaging platforms. And then an important other aspect is that these messaging platforms have started to allow businesses to communicate with users through them. And so this is now how you, you know, do your customer service interaction with your customers in many of these countries. Um, you order something and you have a question about where it's going to be shipped or when it's going to be shipped or whatever you would use one of these messaging apps to do that. And that's certainly something that Facebook's trying to adopt with WhatsApp and its own other messaging platforms. Um, the key thing to note, of course, is that these companies have had to do this as a way to try to make money. Messaging itself doesn't really make money. Nobody really wants to pay for messaging and WhatsApp just dropped its nominal dollar per year fee uh, to use the service uh, as another recognition of that. So the question is just as a pure play messaging provider, how do you make money? And the answer has been to become a platform and, and to do all these additional things that these companies have started to do. So how does any of this apply to Apple, especially because iMessage is already sitting on a platform, right, in the form mm -hmm. of iOS. So so what, what lessons does Apple take away from these different Asian messaging apps that are behaving more like platforms? Yeah, so I think the key message to take away is just that, that messaging as a sort of base layer, as a foundation, can be extremely powerful. Um, but what's different with Apple compared to these Chinese and, and other Asian companies is Apple doesn't need to do this to make money. So it has a perfectly viable business model where iMessage is a, a feature that makes a, a platform that people pay for in other ways more valuable. Um, the other thing is that Apple already has you know, an app store and, and many other things um, baked into iOS um, and to some extent OS X, where it doesn't need iMessage to be all of those things in order to kind of compete or to necessarily protect itself against somebody who's trying to do those things to it. And because iOS is relatively closed, you know, third-party messaging platforms can't really be app stores in the same way that they can on Android, for example, because the only way to download an app to a non-jailbroken iPhone is to go through the official Apple App Store. So there are some important differences, you know, you know, you know, from you know, from a perspective, Apple already owning the platform that iMessage runs on. Um, but 
you know, it's very clear that messaging can be a very compelling thing that uh, a lot more of the things that we do on our phones are going to revolve around messaging and conversations and, and those models. And that if Apple doesn't embrace these things, that it's going to get left behind by third-party platforms like Facebook Messenger, like WhatsApp, um, in Asia, obviously the ones that we've been talking about already. Um, that if Apple doesn't evolve iMessage, it risks getting left behind because it's such a pure play messaging app while others are turning messaging into something much more than that. And so that's really, I think, the key message for Apple is this is the way messaging is going. And, and it may be for different reasons from the reasons that Apple would go there, but it needs to go down that route um, if it's to stay kind of compelling and competitive as a messaging app. So the lessons that Apple learns are one thing, but the, what Apple would actually do with these lessons is another, especially because as a company, sometimes it follows and sometimes it does its own thing entirely. What, what do you think Apple would actually consider doing when it comes to adapting to messaging as a platform? Yeah, so I think there's there's three parts to this, and I think you know there's the user part of it, and there's the kind of developer slash business side of it, and then there's a social part of it. And if there's the part of it that I'm really not convinced about at this point is the social side. Um, but from the perspective of the user, it's about more features and more functionality. Um, and uh, you know, if you talk to people who use iMessage, there's, there's probably a, a wish list that anybody who uses iMessage has for how they'd like it to perform better or do more you know and one of the most obvious things is richer attachments so you can easily send a picture or a video today uh, and if you do send one of those things it's consumable right there within the messaging app uh, but if you try to send anything else it's typically a link of some kind that then uh, is you know just shows as kind of blue text in the context of iMessage and then you have to click on it and then it has to open some other app to actually be consumable in some way it could certainly get a lot richer in terms of, A, the types of things that you could share. So, you know, why not allow you to attach any of the kinds of things you might attach to an email? You know, so a document, um, you know, a PowerPoint presentation, you know, whatever else it might be, especially, you know, the iWork formats uh, for those things. But especially allow people to consume those things within the app. So if I share a link to a playlist within Apple Music, I shouldn't have to click the link and then fire up Apple Music to see it. I should just see the list of songs kind of populate there, or at least a preview of the list of songs uh, populate there in iMessage, allow me to start playing the playlist right there in iMessage without having to come out. So I can enjoy listening to that music as I stay in that conversation and start responding to my friend that shared it with me. So embedding more of that content allows sharing of more content within iMessage seems to be an obvious kind of uh, part of that, um, but there are a lot of other things too. There's, you know, stickers, GIFs, you know, other forms of content that um, are increasingly popular in these other messaging apps. Apple needs to figure out how to do that, and whether it does that itself or whether it just creates an API for third parties to start uh, importing in uh, stickers and so on, which is kind of the way that Facebook Messenger's approached it, for example. Um, you know, they need to have that kind of richer content that allows you to pull in GIFs and stickers and that kind of thing to add more personality to your conversations. Um, another obvious area is payments. And so Apple obviously has Apple Pay already for paying a business either as an in-app purchase or uh, if you're in a store using NFC. Uh, but peer-to-peer -peer payments, you know, the Venmo type model um, you know, is another obvious thing that you could do. You already have a 
relationship with a friend you both have iphones because they're both you my message you have touch id as a way to authenticate it you have you know some kind of payment method there you know add a bank account to that and all of a sudden you could do free person-to-person payments um, through iMessage as well. So that's another example of, you know, what could be done here. So that's the whole user side of things. And I think, you know, there's a lot that Apple could do there to make it a lot richer and more competitive with some of the other apps that are out there. Um, but in some ways, I think it's the sort of developer and business side of things that gets really interesting. Um, so Apple's announced over the last couple of years, you know, a range of different kits for developers. So, um, you know, whether it's watch kit for doing watch apps, whether it's cloud kit for cloud storage uh, behind apps and so on, you know, message kit is another obvious example. It's not my term. Somebody else has coined that term and we'll link to a piece that kind of talks about that a little bit in our show notes. But, um, you know, message kit as a tool for developers and then for businesses to integrate uh, messaging into their apps or which I think has been more compelling is actually integrate their apps into iMessage so that when you um, want to communicate with a business uh, you go into iMessage and you start typing the business name and when you have their app installed it pre-populates that and then takes you to sort of a embedded version of uh, the the customer service experience that's within iMessage where you communicate through messages um, there's the person-to-person element of that. So you have a real person on the other end, you know, just as you would with an online chat or uh, with a phone call. But you've got the bot version of that as well, kind of an automated version where you get customer service done through a kind of communication-based user interface where you ask questions or they ask questions and you respond and you probably have certain pre-populated replies and uh, you know the quick reply function that's already there within iMessage would pre-populate some of those responses and so on. And so there's that whole element of it and uh you know this kind of message-based conversation-based ui is becoming increasingly popular um you know the news website courts just released an app yesterday um which they've kind of been talking about for ages but have never kind of said how it would work but if you download it you'll see that this courts app is basically a messaging interface that says there's a new story about this are you interested and you can kind of say yes i am and you can read the story or you can respond to it in some way with emojis or you can say no next story please and then it sends you another story and sends you notifications in much the same way and it's quite conversational it's a very unique way to think about this stuff but the problem is you have to have this courts app to be able to do it well what if courts could be part of iMessage and just do that whole interaction within iMessage itself rather than having to have a separate app. That would make it you know, very much part of your normal kind of daily routine um, and, and make it feel more personal. And so I think if Apple was to implement a message kit that allowed you to uh, interact with brands either you know, in a person-to-person method or in an automated way using natural language processing and that kind of thing, I think that could be quite compelling. And the key there would be that basically businesses would become blue bubble friends. You know, um, there may be some branding around that so that you know, uh, different companies have their own colors or whatever to, to represent their brand. Um, but the point is that they would be part of the iMessage network. These messages would all be free. You'd get the kind of delivered and read receipts if you wanted them. Um, and you would also um, be able to decide exactly how much information about yourself you wanted to share. So in many cases, you would appear to the brand as just user 1234 rather than with your specific Apple ID. So there'd be a lot of protection of your identity there. But if you wanted to share more, if you wanted to make payments part of that experience, you could do that. And so there's a lot of really rich stuff that you could do around messaging for you know for purchases for customer service for you know ordering things for uh following up on purchases that you've made and that kind of thing there's a lot of stuff that could be done there and as i said news is another area that could 
take advantage of some of this too. So there's a lot of stuff that could be done if Apple would open up an SDK, a message kit SDK for developers and businesses here. Um, and then the third element is social. And as I say, I'm, and this is what I'm least convinced about because I'm not sure Apple really wants to build a social network. But you have a social network. You know, messaging was kind of the original social network. I'll get you email before that. Um, you have the friends that you care about the most probably already set up within iMessage. But right now it's purely conversational and you don't get any kind of status from your friends. You don't have one place where all the friends you shared, have, all the things your friends have shared with you show up. Um, and so there is this whole social aspect where you could have a profile where you could say, this is what I'm doing now. This is what I'm listening now through uh, Apple Music. And that could populate automatically. For example, these are the articles I read today in Apple News and these are the ones that I really enjoyed and want my friends to know about as well. Or... You know, here's, here's that the document that we've been working on together to plan that party that we're having next week or whatever. You know, that stuff could kind of live there in a more sort of semi-permanent way rather than just, you know, as part of individual messages. And so, you know, you've got iCloud photo sharing and all kinds of other stuff that's sort of quasi-social as part of the Apple ecosystem already. And that could potentially become part of, of iMessage as well. So those are some of the things that I could see Apple doing as a way of kind of enhancing iMessage and turning it into more of a more of a messaging platform and not just a messaging app. So this leads us to an eventual uh, question mm -hmm. about the idea of if iMessage becomes a platform rather than a feature of an existing platform like iOS, does that mean Apple would be interested in taking iMessage to other platforms, right? I mean, does it does it do an Android version of iMessage essentially? Right. Because if it has other way, right now iMessage doesn't make Apple any money other than convincing people to buy iPhones. But if getting people to use iMessage um, brings in other revenue sources, then uh, does Apple move this onto onto Android? Right. Yeah, and that, that's, I think that's a really important question. You know, my instinct has always been no. You know, the whole point of iMessage is to add value to the Apple ecosystem to get people who use Apple devices to have this additional value that you can't get in any other way. And so um, that's always been my feeling about it. Um, and so I'd always, you know, said, no, there's no way Apple would take iMessage to Android. You know, Apple did take um, Apple Music to Android recently. And, you know, Tim Cook had this town hall meeting at Apple recently where he was asked about some of this stuff and, and sort of said that, you know, Apple was open to porting more of its functionality to Android in some way wasn't specific about what that would be or how much there would be of that or or anything like that and of course we're getting all this second hand but you know the point is that there are some reasons to take this stuff cross-platform you know one of the things that people most want with iMessage is better support of you know messaging with people that are not part of the Apple ecosystem you have an Android smartphone or you use a Windows computer or whatever um, and so you know, Apple could decide that it's worthwhile to bring people into this. You know, the, the experience would probably still be better on an iOS device because of the tight integration with other elements of the um, Apple ecosystem. So I mentioned, you know, Apple Music, Apple News, uh, iWork, and so on. You know, all these things that could be integrated with it very tightly on an iPhone or a Mac, which would be much harder to do on an Android device or a Windows uh, PC. And so... 
you know, there's an argument to be made that they could extend the functionality there without losing all the attraction of iMessage on iOS and OS X. Um, on balance, I still think they're less likely to do it. I think, you know, this is really about adding value to um, an Apple device, which is, after all, how Apple makes its money. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I'm less certain that I would have been in the past about, that Apple would never do this. You know, I, I think there's still a possibility that this stuff would potentially go across to Android, for example, which is the only platform that really makes sense. Another possibility would be, you know, to make iMessage another cloud service. So iWork and contacts and various other things already work through iCloud online. Um, you know, you could do iMessage that way and that would cover Windows PCs, for example. So it's unlikely somebody would sign up for iMessage on a Windows PC just for the sake of using iMessage. But if they're an iPhone user, but also a Windows PC user, which is very common, um, then that would allow them a way to extend it to the web and, and do other things with it there. So, so that's really interesting. Um, so yeah, I, as I say, on balance, I think probably not, but I'm less certain than I was. It definitely things, seems like that would be later down the road. I mean, I think Apple right. would right now, if they're going to be enhancing iMessage, I think the, the, the story to consumers would be, hey, here's another reason to buy an iPhone. Right. But uh, once revenue models start to build up there, I could see it happening in the way that music moved over to Android as well. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. a fascinating rundown. I'm, I'm, I'm curious if people at Apple will, will be listening to that <laughs> because there's definitely a lot of potential with iMessage. I know I've, I know I've found multiple ways where I wished it was more deeply ingrained into, um, you know, the other types of things that I do. And honestly, if we had a world where all of my friends were blue bubble friends, uh, I would be happier because of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I expect iMessage to be a big thing at WWDC. I don't know to what extent any of the things that we've talked about will be part of that, but certainly I would think that they will enrich it in some way. And, and you know, it'll be interesting to see if it's an incremental improvement or if it's more dramatic and we see something like Message Kit show up. All right, well, let's move on to our final topic, which is Twitter's earnings. So we'll probably spend about 10 minutes on this. Um, in case you haven't read this week, Twitter announced its earnings. Um, the, the highlights were that the user growth basically has, has stopped and actually, um, according to one measure of their active user base, it actually shrank um, quarter on quarter. Um, on the other hand, the revenue they generate per user continues to rise strongly. And so their revenue growth was pretty good. Uh, they're still losing money as a company, um, but their margins are improving over time. And uh, on the earnings call, the company's management talked about what they want to do to try to fix Twitter and kind of improve it and what they're going to be focusing on this year. So Aaron, why don't we start with you? What were your kind of initial thoughts about all of this? Well, I, I think actually the person who captured this best is Josh Constein over at TechCrunch. Um, he had a fantastic piece that, that is titled A Rant About Why Twitter's Past Failures Make It Nearly Unfixable. Now, obviously, that's a that's a you know inflammatory headline because that's how that stuff works today. But um, but he, he had a lot of great insights. There was a stretch when Twitter was just dumping users in. I mean, they had their Oprah moment, right? And and people were signing up for Twitter like crazy, but there was so much friction in the platform back in those days. I mean, you had the fail well, uh, making pretty frequent you know, appearances. You had um, people sort of enjoying but bristling against the 140-character limit and then finding themselves even more frustrated by the fact that a reply, for example, would use up characters and 
And uh, so there was a group of power users who really figured this out and also did it on the backs of third-party apps that solved some of the problems that were annoying users. And then you had a bunch of other users who weren't, uh, who weren't enamored by the platform because of all the friction inherent in using it. And they just found themselves moving away. Um, I think, for example, the, you know, the change that they made this week to an algorithmic timeline rather than a chronological one is years late. Um, I, I think a lot of people, you know, would add a bunch of people to follow in Twitter and then just be overwhelmed by the noise. And there was really no way to simplify the noise without doing a lot of work. I mean, you'd have to create lists and do all this other stuff. And I, I think the the end of the story is that there were so many there were so many people that tried Twitter and moved on it's hard to imagine them coming back. I think I think we are now at a point where, at least in the U.S., anybody who is going to try Twitter has tried it. And you have the power users who get a lot of value out of it, um, and then you have everybody else who tried it and moved on to something else, especially younger people using Snapchat um, and Instagram and other things that are more compelling to them. So it's hard to imagine where Twitter grows its user base from here because... That there's, I mean, you know, with the exception of a total reinvention of of the platform, um, which obviously would bring huge risks and a big backlash from the users they already have, it's just hard to imagine Twitter seeing any more substantial user growth. Yeah, that's absolutely challenging. One of the one of my favorite phrases from the earnings call was um, "resurrected users," and so they were talking about. The, to your point, you know, a lot of the people they're trying to attract now are not people who are new to Twitter. They're people who've tried it and left and stopped using the service, and and who they're trying to win back. And they refer to those as resurrected users, and so that was quite fun. But it's you know part of the challenge is the people who have tried it think they understand it, didn't like it, and now you have to convince them. No, it's different now. It's easier to use. You know, you'll like it, you'll get more value out of it. And that's a much harder sell in some ways than, than getting a completely new user. But in a market like the US where they have, you know, 60-something million uh, monthly active users on Twitter, you know, the other 200-and-something, you know, addressable users, uh, million addressable users are, are people who've likely tried it and not seen a lot of value in it. And, and trying to convince them to come back is really tough. Um, you know, one of the things that I found striking on the call was, you know, there was so much talk about these are the things that we know are not working that people are frustrated by that need to be better and it was like but you've known this for years and you haven't done anything about it um and that's the most you know frustrating thing for me about watching twitter is the core problems have been known about for a long time now both inside and outside of twitter and yet they're not fixing them you know even when they clearly identify them on these earnings calls they move very very slowly to fix some of these things and you know the algorithmic timeline is something that's been talked about for ages it's a great fix for people who have bothered to follow a bunch of accounts and, and got to the point that you were talking about where they're kind of overwhelmed by them and need some filtering but if you're just starting to use Twitter, it doesn't actually do you any good. You still have to figure out who to follow in the first place. And so it's that whole side of you know, the onboarding process and allowing people to follow topics rather than individual accounts. That's the biggest single shift that Twitter needs to my mind. And, and that's the thing they still haven't really embraced. There was a lot of talk about embracing live 
which, you know, in fairness, I think is what Twitter does best. Um, but it's kind of what Twitter's been doing already, you know, and, and Periscope's been out there for a while now. That's live video. You know, the, the stream itself is live. You know, Vine is a really interesting product, but isn't live. And so it seems that's going to be de-emphasized somewhat. You know, so much going on that just feels like the stuff that they've identified as problems they're not fixing very well. And the future direction just doesn't seem all that compelling or likely to fix some of these key problems that they have. And, and meanwhile, you know, the user growth has shrunk to zero or less than zero. You know, it was a, a time they were adding 50,000, 60,000 users over the course of a year. Um, you know, this past year they've added 17,000. And if they, um, if the trend continues this coming quarter, um, it will drop down to less than five just because they had one really big quarter back in Q1 last year. Um, so once we get past that, they've added very little, like two to 3,000, and in some, some cases lost 2,000 um, users a quarter. And it's just not that compelling. And um, there was a great article recently by um, a guy called Amir Afrati who writes for The Information, which is subscription only. So you, you, um, you may be able to read the article if we link to it. Um, but uh, he had great information from kind of sources inside of Twitter about the fact that half their users in the US they can't even show ads to either because they're using third-party clients or they're just not using it enough for it to be worthwhile. Um, you know, they've got some really big problems like that that they, they need to figure out. And, and uh, you know, at some point there's a ceiling on their growth unless they're able to turn that, that user growth around, which right now they're really struggling to do. And it will take some huge breakthrough feature that leverages what makes Twitter great and enhances it in a way that nobody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And as time marches on, that's going to be harder and harder to pull off. I mean, it really is. There's, there's only, you know, the, the, when it comes to social networking and the way users communicate with each other through these sorts of platforms, um, you know, the, it, the vast majority of the low-hanging fruit has been captured. And right. so it's hard to imagine Twitter having this, you know, this sudden productive brainstorm that all of a sudden changes the platform in a way that makes everybody want to come back who already mm -hmm. tried it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think I, I wrote a piece a while back called Twitter's channel model is broken. And it basically focused on this idea that following individual user accounts is not the right way to go as far as you know the onboarding experience for a new user what users need to be able to do is pick topics that they're interested in and then they have the feed auto populate the stuff that's relevant to that topic um and i think until you know moments is an attempt at that but it's very much kind of fleeting moments it's not permanent so every time you log in you still have to say which of these moments am i interested in um, but, you know, you need to be able to say, I'm interested in the NBA and specifically I'm a Warriors fan or I'm a Jazz fan or whatever else it might be. Or I'm interested in uh, NCAA football and, you know, the, the, this is my team um, or this is the players that I want to follow or, you know, just kind of topic based. And then you get, you know, combination of the players, the coaches, people who write about them, uh, but filtered such that you get the most interested stuff about that topic. And then allow you to switch channels. So I'm interested in these five topics. I don't want them all thrown in together because that's kind of disorienting. Uh, right now, I want to dive into my NBA channel, and then I want to dive into my U.S. politics channel, and then I want to dive into my, you know, stock market channel, and you know, see all these different things. And you know, I think that that model is what they need, and all the ingredients are there. It's just it needs to be presented to the user in a very different way. And I feel like that's that's one of the biggest things that they could do to attract new users better is is make that onboarding experience, the kind of first experience of Twitter more rewarding. I think this is an interesting point. I mean, Twitter's 
Twitter's entire method of operation from the start was simplified, right? I mean, that was the appeal of microblogging is it sort of stripped away all the, you know, all the extraneous nonsense that came with mess- with with blogging and, and simplified it into a 140-character tweet. And that seemed baked into the culture of the organization. Well, the problem was, is, as you know, it's really been users that have been adding features. You know, hashtags weren't Twitter's idea. It was the user's idea. But the, the result is you get kind of this proto- set of features like there's a proto twitter right Right. that people are constantly using and over the years twitter's just done a really bad job of taking these proto features and developing them into the exact kind of thing you've described i mean hashtags have been around forever and and if there was a way to sort of benefit from i mean you get and you get trending hashtags right but that's only Mm -hmm. if you go to the twitter website or use the twitter app and right and uh and, and the problem is is these features you know or just seem to over years remain underdeveloped, and it's a mm-hmm. shame because it, it seems like that 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 culture of keeping everything really simple and bare bones has has prevented them from adding the kind of stuff that would really keep people around. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely agreed. All right, well, let's wrap up that topic there. That's the last of our topics today. Um, we will finish up our episode with a weekly pick, which again we've dispensed with the last couple of weeks as we've been covering earnings, but. Uh, Aaron, you've got the weekly pick this week. Yeah, so I'm going to actually recommend a service called VidAngel, V-I-D-A-N-G-E-L.com. Um, this is a, an alternative to watching streaming movies and television shows online to the many other services that are out there. But there are a few things that make VidAngel distinctive and I think really appealing. I've been using VidAngel now for a few months and I really like it. Um, the, the, I think the two things that are most distinctive about it are one is the eventual, the, the end cost for it is inexpensive, um, much cheaper than renting movies, say from iTunes or uh you know, or Google Play or any of the other um, options for renting movies online. Because with those, you're going to pay anywhere from 3 to $5, depending on, you know, the movie and the quality of the stream that you're getting. Um, the other problem is, of course, you have that 24-hour time horizon from the time you start the video. Um, uh, the way that Angel works is you actually purchase digital copies of these movies. So you're buying a $20 version of the, of the movie. And then you sell it back. So you're selling back the digital copy that you've bought. And obviously you sell it back for less than the price you paid to purchase it. Depending on the quality, the, the net effect is you'll pay a dollar for SD movies and $2 for HD movies. Um, they, the way it works is as long as you keep it as long as you want when you own it. You watch as many as, ti- as many times as you want while you own it. And then when you're done, you can sell it back to VidAngel, and all you have to do is click a button and sell it back. Um, obviously, to be useful, you know, people aren't watching movies on their computer screens anymore. They're watching, you know, on mobile devices. And, and the mobile apps for VidAngel work great. Um, the, the, the browser-based um, the, uh, the even watching through mobile browsers works great. They also have apps built in for Chromecast and Roku and and Apple TV, which makes it really handy. Um, so so that's one so that's one aspect that makes it unique and cool is it it changes the economics of how you watch these movies in a way that makes them much more expensive inexpensive and appealing. But the other really cool thing, and this is cool for example for parents, um, is that. Because you purchase it, it changes, it, it, it essentially adds the ability for you to watch edited versions of these movies. 
um, it's it's not legal for uh, because of copyright law for the companies renting you movies to rent you edited versions. But but the but you are allowed to edit anything that you own, and because you own these movies, uh, VidAngel sets up this massive set of filters where you can filter on a really granular level. In fact, they when you when you sort of turn on and off the filters for any movie, you can get down to each individual scene or swear word or whatever you want, and they include everything that somebody might find objectionable or nervous to show their kids. In fact, we watched the old Disney Sleeping Beauty. Um, no, sorry, Cinderella. We watched the old Disney cart Cinderella uh, animated movie. And uh, it was hilarious because we got to a point and all of a sudden um, the prince's dad, the king, was bleeped out. And we were like, what in the world could he have said? It turns out he said pompous windbag. And we hadn't checked the filters because we didn't think it'd be a problem. But, you know, VidAngel had, got, had gone to that extent to make sure that, you know, you have control over what it is that you watch when you watch a movie. And and I think that will be, it, it, you know, this has obviously obvious appeal for, for families and especially parents of young children. Um, they've got all kinds of movies, new releases. Um, usually, you know, there's that 30-day window from the time a movie goes for sale digitally. From the, to the time it becomes available to rent digitally, they usually get their movies at the rental, the later rental um, release. But uh, they're growing pretty quickly. Um, I've never had any troubles with the reliability of the service, and you know, all in all, it's a pretty inexpensive way to watch movies and everywhere that I watch them. And so, I, I really highly recommend VidAngel.com. Um, as a way to watch movies however you want and for in the end a much cheaper price yep great well we just uh, we watched back to the future the other day um and back to the future is one of those movies that you think of as a pretty family-friendly movie and it is except for all the swearing there's a huge amount of swearing in it and so we watched it with our little kids the other day and we, we used uh, vid angel to do it and basically filtered out all the swear words but again we forgot to check one of the boxes on the filters and so there was a couple of scenes where it suddenly skipped ahead and it turned out something vaguely violent was happening and so it's one of these things as aaron was saying you have to be very granular about the filters and make sure you only filtering out what you really want to but uh, to the extent that you want to it's a great way to watch some movies that you might otherwise be put off from because of you know that one scene or a bit too much language for the kids or whatever else it might be so we'll put a link to uh, VidAngel on the site along with uh, these other uh, things that we've been talking about some of the links especially around the iMessage conversation that we had there are some links to great articles that I want to include there as well so thank you for being with us we appreciate you spending this time with us and uh, we look forward to being with you again next week thanks